If you have a Bible, go ahead and go to Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. And let me just say, I'm, I'm thankful for um, Tristan and Rich. Rich, thank you for preaching last week. Um, and I, I heard that it was a, a wonderful morning of worship. And, um, but I, I'm excited to be in Philippians 3 um, with you today. So let me read that for us. <clears throat> Philippians 3, starting in verse 12. <clears throat> Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Well, we've been in a series going through Philippians called Things That Last, um, and this week um, we're going to talk about the lasting prize. And so let me uh, just read off to you verse 12. Um, he says, not that I have already obtained this. So he starts off by referring to what he just said. He says, not that I have already obtained this. So the first thing I think we have to do this morning before we jump fully into the text is to answer the question, okay, what is the this that Paul is talking about? And to do that, we have to go backwards. And so real quickly, I want to summarize what Rich preached last week, which I thought he did a wonderful job expo expositing the first 11 verses um, of this text. But I want to give you three things from last week that will help us understand this text, the next six verses um, today. So three things from last week. The first thing is that satisfaction, satisfaction in life can only come through worshiping Christ, can only come through worshiping Christ. I think many of us live our lives under a subtle lie that can overtake us. It can sneak up on us if we're not careful. And, and the lie is this, if I live life well enough, then God will love me more. So if I do enough things, if I'm a good person, if I memorize enough scriptures, if I can move the pieces on the board in such a way that God will look at me a certain way, then he will love me. And in three verses in Philippians 3, Paul destroys that philosophy. He says, whatever there was to be obtained, I did it. He says in verse 3, if anyone thinks he has confidence in, in the flesh, I have more. Essentially, he says, I'm the best and I know it. Right? He says, I'm the best. No one compares to me. He's, if there was a religious mountain to climb, I climbed it. And here's the thing. Essentially, he says, when I got to the top, it was fleeting. It was empty. There was no joy. There was no satisfaction. He says, whatever gain I had... I count it as loss. It's lesser than. Well, lesser than what? It was lesser than the joy and satisfaction that comes from knowing Christ. And that leads to the second thing we need to know from last week. 
that the aim of our life is to know him. The aim of our life is to know him in glory. He says in Philippians 3.10 that he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So when you boil it, boil it down, Paul says, the aim of my life is to know him. And since, think about this, since Christ is infinite, there will always be more of him to be had. You will never be able to reach the mountain to say, I, I, under, I know it all. I, I know everything about him. I understand God now. I've learned all that I can learn. Like, no, he's sustainer, he's savior, he's friend, he's comforter. It goes on and on. And just like a spouse, right? Just like a spouse, there's always more of them to know, more of them to learn. So specifically, he says, we are to know, and I love this, the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. Think about that. I would know the power of his resurrection. That means that I would live my life in such a way that when I look at my life, when I look at others' lives, when I look at the circumstances of the world, that I would not put my confidence in what I think I can do. I wouldn't put my confidence in other people. I wouldn't put my confidence in politicians or the things of this world, but I put my confidence in the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And if I really know that, if I truly know the power of the resurrection of Jesus, then my faith can't be swayed. Because nothing is as good as him. Nothing is as powerful as him. Nothing is as loving as him. And that leads to the last thing we need to know from the first few verses of chapter 3. If we truly know him and the power of his resurrection, then we will gladly suffer as he suffered. So think about the how and the why of the cross. Right? How and the why of the cross of Christ. He came from perfect heaven to broken earth, to redeem sinners through his death and resurrection. And he lived his life with that destination in mind. The scriptures had said that it was going to happen. God had, the Father had sent him for a purpose, to fulfill the scriptures, the, the redeeming of God's people. And, and scripture, and like in the book of Mark, for example, if you look through the book of Mark, you'll see a phrase over and over. It says, as he was on his way, as he was on his way, as he was on his way. He was going to Jerusalem. He had one purpose. He was going to Jerusalem to die. And time and time again, people tried to keep him from doing that. When he goes to the desert, Satan's there. And Satan tries to tempt him to not do what he set out to do. When, when he tells, um, when, when Peter says, hey, I think you're the Christ, right? And then so Jesus responds and he says, well, the, I am the son of man and the son of man must suffer and die. And Peter starts to rebuke Jesus said, no, don't do that. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. When when he's on the cross, right, the religious leaders yell at him and they say, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And so Jesus, he looked at a fallen world that would rather kill him than worship him. And he said, no, I am here for a purpose. So I will suffer so that you can share in my grace. I will suffer so that you can share in my grace. And in the same way, we suffer. We suffer in a fallen world. We partake in a world that would rather destroy him, eliminate him, get rid of him, than worship him. And so we suffer to share in the grace of 
Jesus. So before we jump into verse 12, three things. One, satisfaction in life can only come through worshiping Christ. Two, the aim of our life is to know him. And three, we will share his sufferings. All right, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So think about those three things. Paul says we should be satisfied in Christ. We should count all things as rubbish in light of him. He says that we should know him. He says that we should share in his suffering. And think, really think about those three things that Paul just asked, right? Just said that we should do. That's a high calling, right? I mean, that is, that's a lot. I mean, have you accomplished that? Have you obtained this? Because I think I haven't. I would be surprised if anyone said that he did. But, but look what he says. He says, I haven't done this. I haven't obtained this. He says, I'm not perfect. He says, look, I fall short too. I don't always get it right. And, and it's the same for us. We aren't perfect. There are no perfect people here. We aren't always going to get it right. Each of us are going to fall. We, we will always. Some of us, as, as God sanctifies us, it will be less and less. But all of us, we're going to worship other, something other than Christ at some point. We're going to choose to delight in something else at some point. And when that happens, there are two dangerous responses that we can have. So when we fail, there are two dangerous responses we can have. The first one, and this is the one I'm guilty of a lot of times, is to look at your imperfection and go, well, I'm the worst of the worst. You ever done that? You mess up, you fail, you sin, you fail your spouse, you fail your kids, you mess up, you get a bad grade on a test, and you say, well, I'm, I'm the worst of the worst, and God will never love me. And when you come face to face with your, the sin that you did, when you got angry, when you looked at something you shouldn't have, when you fell short, is your natural tendency to say, well, this is all pointless because I am worthless. You know what that is? kind of mindset that is, I think that's pride. That's pride. Like typically we think of pride as someone who is really arrogant and kind of just hovers over people in a domineering way, but pride can also manifest itself in the person who has a tendency to self-loathe, right? Because what is, what is pride at its core? Pride is channeling all of your effort, all of your perspective, all of your affections at yourself. So if your response when you fail, when you say, yeah, I'm not perfect, when you fail is to say, well, woe is me, that's just who I am, I am the worst, then that's pride. That's pride. The, the second re- response we can have to our failure is indifference. Indifference. Well, if I'm just going to fail at following Jesus, then what's the point? And our churches are filled with indifferent people. That can be for a lot of reasons, not just this one. Like um, sin could be blocking your affection. You are continually practicing and enjoying a sin, and that is blocking your affection for Christ. Um, maybe you've fallen into, which I think is what this indifference is, you've fallen into some sort of works-based religion, right, where you're trying to earn the smile of God, where Jesus is seen as something that can be conquered. Christianity is something that can be mastered. And when someone realizes that Jesus cannot be conquered, that can create indifference. And and let me say this, where there is indifference, it reveals that you don't really know Christ. 
So if you have no love for him, no affection for him, you're just kind of playing a game of Christianity. There's no real love, no real affection, no real desire to know him. If you are indifferent towards the things of Christ, I think it would be good for you to pause and ask the question, why? Why are you indifferent towards his word? Why are you indifferent towards the things of God? Because, because indifference is not a mark of a follower of Christ. Indifference is a mark of religion. So I think it would be good for you to ask the question, why? So he says, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but he says, I press on to make it my own. He says, I haven't done it. I'm, I'm not perfect, but he says, I press on to make it my own. So yes, I am not perfect. I am not always fully satisfied in Christ. That should make us kind of feel good, right? Like even Paul says, I'm not always, like I haven't obtained this. I don't always fully know him, but you know what? I press on to make it my own. I want to be satisfied. I want to fully know him. And, and, you know, in our context, you know what the, I think the difference or the, the opposite of indifference is? I think it's this phrase, holy discontentment. Holy discontentment, which is saying, I am not content with being satisfied by the things of this world. I am not content with not knowing you. And here's where holy discontentment starts. It starts with a proper understanding of your brokenness, a proper understanding of your brokenness, and a proper understanding of God's holiness. Like, look, and most of us would be quick to admit this, we are really broken people. (laughs) Like, we are really broken people, but holy discontentment, it's it's admitting that you don't have it all together. It's admitting, admitting the places of your heart that don't pursue God. It's admitting that in your flesh you will never be able to fully follow Christ. But, that, but just admitting that is not enough because that's where that reverse pride can come in. Say, well, I'm the worst of the worst. I'm never gonna fully understand. I'm never gonna be able to do this. But because holy discontentment, it's not only understanding your brokenness, but it's also understanding the holiness of God. It's, it's looking, it's admitting, yes, I'm not perfect, but he is. And it's looking at his perfection, his justice, his sovereignty, his authority, and going, I want him. I, I want him. Yes, I'm broken. Yes, I'm dirty. But he's not. He's perfect. He's good. And so I want him. I want to worship him more than I do right now. I want to know him more than I do right now. There, there's an old lyric that they used to play at First Baptist Church of Quero all the time when I was a teenager. And I started, um, and God saved me. And I'm, I'm sure many of you will know this, but It said, turn your eyes upon Jesus, and the things of this world will what? Grow strangely dim. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Holy discontentment, right? So, okay, that's cool, but practically, what does that look like? Practically, what does holy discontentment look like? I think first, it's knowing yourself. And that comes through sanctification as God grows you. But, but know yourself. Like, don't lie to yourself about you. Admit where you're weak. Admit where you need help. Admit where you're strong, where God has gifted you. Um, like, I'll give you an example from my own life. Like, I love studying the Bible. I love it. Um, always have. 
Um, from the moment I was saved, I just felt like, like reading the Bible was not labor for me. Um, it wasn't, it, 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 it wasn't, it sounds arrogant, but it wasn't hard, right? I enjoyed it. But you asked me to pray for an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. I'm going to struggle with that. And, and I did in the past. I'm going to struggle with that. And so by knowing myself, I've done two things. One, I married a woman who loves to pray. <laughs> I mean, she could pray for hours and hours and hours. I've, I've surrounded myself with people who love to pray. And I know, since I know that about myself, I know that I can just read and read and read and never actually engage my friend, my Savior, that I, I will sit down and I will pray what I'm reading. Pray the text. So know where you're weak. Know where you're strong. Because that, and the second thing I would say is always measure yourself, not against other people, but measure yourself against the holiness of Christ. Measure yourself against the holiness of Christ. Because by doing that, it will create in you an understanding that, that yeah, you're not perfect. You're going to fail. You're going to sin. But, but it will also create in you a yearning to really know the one who's perfect. Because the more you press into him, the sweeter he gets, the better he gets. Yeah, I'm broken. Yeah. And, and the more aware of you, like the more you know him, the more aware of your sin you become. Right? Be, 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 because you see his holiness, you see his perfection, you see, I'm lacking. I'm lacking in my holiness. And it creates in you also a yearning to know him, to say, man, he is good. I want to continue pressing on. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Yes, I am not perfect, but I press on. I keep going. I keep fighting. I keep my gaze set on Christ. And you might say, well, why? Why would I do that? Why would I keep pressing on if I'm just going to keep failing? <laughs> Paul says, I press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Really think about those words. Like, like let's not just pass over these. Because I can talk really fast sometimes, and you're like, oh, what did he say? Really think about those words. I press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Think on that. Meditate on that. Christ Jesus has made you his own. He, he has you. He has taken hold of you. And that truth, if God gives you the grace to truly believe it, that will start in you a discontentment with this world. Because you are dirty, you are broken, you are unworthy, but Jesus has come. He has died and risen from the grave. And as Tristan read earlier, Corinthians says, he has bought you with a price. So you're his. Nothing can steal you away from him. Um, if you would, go with me to Ephesians 1. I want to show you what this means, that Christ has made you his own, because it is so good. Ephesians 1, and I think it should be on the screen as well. Um, starting in verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And, and here's, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And why did he choose us? 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. Think about that. Before Jesus, who is present at creation, the the words of our God, before he spoke the universe into existence, before he said, let there be light, before he created the trees and the grass, before he placed the clouds and the stars in the sky, before he did any of that, he chose you. And he chose you to be holy and blameless before him. I want you to do this. I want you to think about this. Close your eyes if you need to. Think about that thing that you did that you never thought you would do. That place that you went that you never thought you would go to. When you truly felt broken, maybe it was a day, maybe it was a moment, maybe it was a season where you just, you felt this is the lowest of the low. I never thought I would do this. I never thought I would do that. Think about that. And then let enter into your mind the cross of Christ. When those two things collide, God calls you holy and blameless. He has made you his own. Whatever victories you think you have, whatever sufferings, whatever sorrow, whatever sin you think owns you, it does not. Christ has bought you. Christ has bought us. So what does Paul mean when he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own? I think he's talking about that reality, that when we truly understand the grace and forgiveness of Jesus and light of our brokenness and sin, when we truly understand that we are his, we'll pursue him. Holy discontentment, that he looks at you and he says, mine, you belong to him, nothing can steal you away, and we press into that. Like, let me ask you, this is going to sound kind of weird and it's rhetorical, but why are you here? <laughs> why, why are you here on a Sunday morning? Like, especially if you're single, <laughs> why are you here? There's, isn't there so many other things that you could be doing right now? Why do you wake your family up early on a Sunday morning to come listen to a dude talk for 40 minutes about how you should live your life? Why do you do that? We make you stand up a lot, up and down here. Like, there are so many other things you could be doing. Church is the lamest hobby that you could have. It's, it's the lamest hobby you could have. Like, go get a boat. Go on a hike. Go golfing. Church is a lame hobby, and church will feel like that until you realize that the object of our worship when we gather is so much better than any other thing. Why? Because he's made us his own. Because he's chosen us. He's called us. We are here to worship, to grow in our knowledge of him, to grow in our affection for him, to be energized by him and the people of God, to go into this world for his mission and purpose. Look, you are not expected by me or anybody else to be perfect. You're not expected to be perfect. But I I think that you are expected to pursue the perfect Christ. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Verse 13. He says this, which is so interesting. He says, one thing I do, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So, okay, forgetting what lies behind, let's, let's talk about what this means. 
This isn't a blanket statement that means don't think about the past. Like we know that because of what the rest of the Bible says. Like I read Psalm 77 earlier, like throughout the scriptures, God is constantly telling us to remember. He's telling his people to remember. I mean, Psalm 77, 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Hebrews 11 is just the roll call of remembering the saints that have come before. So what does he mean by forgetting what lies behind? I think he's saying two things. One, so pay attention to this one. It's kind of wordy. Um, one, the victories of yesterday are behind you, okay? When you overcame something, when you had a win, whatever that is, when God came through in that moment, that can be, in one sense, a healthy reminder of God's provision and power, right? We remember that. But it can also serve as a way for us to be lazy in regards to our faith if you depend on that victory of yesterday for the victory of today, like, it's not enough to say, well, God has come through in the past, so God will work this out as well. Because then you can become indifferent about current and future sin just because there was a victory in the past. Like 1 Corinthians 10, 12, 10, 12, this says this, therefore, let anyone thinks he stands, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So take heed, you have an enemy, an enemy that wants to destroy you, and if you don't take heed, you will fall. What's he saying? We don't live off the victories of yesterday. Listen, the victory of yesterday was given to you by the grace of Jesus yesterday. The victory of today is given to you by the grace of Jesus today, and the victory of tomorrow is given to you by the grace of Jesus Tomorrow, if you are betting on yesterday's grace, on today's struggle, then you're going to fall. We press into Jesus today and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. We forget what lies behind because the victory of yesterday does not guarantee the victory of today. If you focus on the victories of yesterday and use that as an excuse not to fight the battle today, you will fall. Does that make sense? That's the first thing. The second thing I think he means by forget what's behind is to believe that the grace and mercy of Jesus was, it's to believe that that grace and mercy was enough, was enough for the failures of yesterday. So that thing you did, that thing you thought about, that struggle you had, if you, listen, if you have confessed it, if you have repented and truly surrendered to him, Leave it there. Leave it there. If you have repented of a sin in the past, if you have confessed it to God and the people of God, if you, if you have truly surrendered that to him, leave that there. Don't let it creep up and affect how you think of the grace of God today. The grace of God yesterday was true, and it was real. Leave that there. Forget what lies behind. Put off the old and put on the new. Let God sanctify you in that failure and rest in the grace of yesterday and press into the grace of today and tomorrow. Paul shows us this truth in 1 Timothy 1. So if you want to go there, it's 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. Paul tells Timothy, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ 
Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And here's what he says, of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus, so here's, here's why, here's why, <laughs> here's why. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And I meet so many people who just feel like they can never be used by Jesus because of their past. And you know what? I thought about saying this or not, but that's actually a pretty arrogant mindset that you are the one person, you are the one person that God can't save, you are the one person that God can't use, that's not the gospel. That's not what we see in scripture. He says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believed. So forget what lies behind. Whatever you carry that God isn't even asked you to carry because Jesus has already carried it on the cross, forget it. Leave it there. Let it sanctify it. Learn about yourself. Learn how you're wired. Learn your temptations. But leave it there. Forget what lies behind. And today, you fight the battle with the grace of Jesus that's given to you today. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And then let me read 14 and 15. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Okay, forget what lies behind, right? But then he says, strain, <laughs> press on, go, move forward, pursue. So I'm not just surviving. I'm not just hoping. I'm straining. I'm pressing. I'm going. I'm moving towards something. I'm moving towards a prize. And it's the greatest prize that there is. Paul loves this type of language. Like this type of language is all over his letters. Like 1 Timothy 4, 7, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. It just means don't play games with your faith. Don't just hope that something's true. Know that it's true. He says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of, is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life, for your life right now. Training yourself, disciplining yourself for godliness holds, gives you hope for today, yeah. present life. And then he says in verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Verse 10, for to this end we toil, we strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Like, look at the language. Train, toil, strive. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, another example. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Run that you may obtain Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So he says, I do not run aimlessly. You know why he says that? Think about what he said in Philippians 1, verse 5. God will complete the work that he began in us. We don't run aimlessly. 
there's a promise here. That God, who saved us, who chose us, will complete that. He says, I, I do not run aimlessly. I, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So here's the deal. The grace of God is so unbelievably incomprehensible. God in his sovereign power has saved you and he saved me without any effort or ability for us to contribute to that salvation. Think about it. What Christ accomplished on the cross, it's scandalous. To call a sinner, a dirty, broken person, holy and blameless, to adopt us as children, as his children, that is backwards from any other religion that exists. The abundance of grace and mercy we have from God should make us fall on our knees every single day. But the reality is that it doesn't, right? There is something in us that wants to run from him. There is something in us that makes us hesitant towards truly trusting him, towards truly striving and pressing into him. There is an enemy that still wants to take that sinful desire that I have and that you have and wants to manipulate it away from the holiness of God. Like, think about the Old Testament, the people of God in the Old Testament. Moses goes up on a mountain, he goes to meet God, and God gives him the, ten, the, the law. And while he's meeting and receiving the law from God, what are the people of God doing? They're taking all their gold and they're making a calf. Right? And these people that had seen the power of God on a level that you and I have never seen and probably will never see, he, he turned every bit of water to blood. Think, think about it. He, he created infestations of frogs and locusts. Like, look, last week when I went down to the beach, we were on Padre Island National Seashore. One night, me and my brother-in-law were doing some night fishing, catching nothing but hardhead. We're sitting there with our poles. The stars are bright. The moon is massive. I mean, it was gorgeous. There was no lights, no city, nothing but God's earth. And I looked at the ocean, and I couldn't help but wonder, what would it look like if God just parted that, just moved it? These people saw it. They saw it. They literally walked through the sea, the power of God on visible display. And weeks after that, weeks, they're worshiping a golden calf made from their own hands. So here's the reality. By the grace of God, we will toil. As he gives us the strength, we will toil, we will strive to a commitment to press on towards Christ. Without that toil, without that strife, you'll always find yourself worshiping the things that don't satisfy. Like, maybe it's okay to make a plan, Think about that. That kind of making a plan and being disciplined sometimes gets a bad rap, right? Like we're squashing the spirit of God. Maybe it's okay to make a plan. Maybe it's okay to set a schedule for when you're going. Maybe it's okay to be disciplined to read scripture because being disciplined to pray and to know and to learn actually position yourself to enjoy Christ even more. You aren't boxing the air. You aren't running to a finish line that doesn't exist. We have a prize, a prize that's better than anything you could ever imagine, and a prize that gets sweeter and sweeter the more you know it. The more you know Jesus, the better he 
gets. Just like the more I know my wife, the more you know your spouse, the better they're going to get. And then let me close with verse 16 here. He says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. I love this. Uh, The Greek word in verse 16 is the word stoike. Okay, It's also a fun word to say, stoike. Um, It's where we get the word march from. So what he's saying here is, let us march to what we have attained. I think that's cool. And it's used in the plural form, which means we do this together. We march to what we have attained. This truth that we have, this reality that Christ has come, he has died, he has risen from the grave, and he's better than anything else. We march to this together, right? Let us hold true to what we have attained. You need your brothers and sisters to march with you. That's why we gather. We are marching together towards the goal and prize of Christ, and we get to enjoy the grace of God together.